Chapter 9 of The City of Fire by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 After Billy had listened a long time, he took a single step to relieve his cramped toes, which were numb with the tensity of his strained position. Stealthily as he could, he moved his shoe, but it seemed to grind loudly upon the cement floor of the cellar, and he stopped, frozen in tensity, again to listen. After a second he heard a low growl as if someone outside the house were speaking. Then all was still. After a time he heard the steps again, cautiously, walking over his head, and his spine seemed to rise right up and lift him as he stood trembling. He wasn't a bit superstitious, Billy wasn't. He knew there was no such thing as a ghost, and he wasn't going to be fooled by any noises whatsoever— but anybody would admit it was an unpleasant position to be in, pinned in a dark, unfamiliar cellar without a flashlight, and steps coming overhead where only a dead man or a doped man was supposed to be. He cast one swift glance back at the cobwebby window through which he had so recently arrived and longed to be back again, out in the open with the bells, the good bells sounding a call in his ears. If he were out, wouldn't he run? Wouldn't he even leave his old bicycle to any fate and run? But no, he couldn't. He would have to come back inevitably. Whoever was upstairs in that house alone and in peril, he must save. Suppose... His heart gave a great dry sob within him and he turned away from the dusty exit that looked so little now and so inadequate for sudden flight. The steps went on overhead shuffling a little louder and they seemed further off. They were climbing the stairs, he believed. They wore rubber heels. Link had worn rubber heels. And Shorty's shoes were covered with old overshoes. Had they come back, perhaps to hide from their pursuers? His heart sank. If that were so, he must get out somehow and go after the police. But that should be his last resort. He didn't want to get anyone else in this scrape until he knew exactly what sort of scrape it was. It wasn't square to anybody— not square to the doped man, not square to himself, not even square to Pat and the other two, and, yes, he must own it, not square to Cart. That was his first consideration, Cart. He must find Cart. But first, he must find out somehow who that man was that had been kidnapped. It seemed an age that he waited there in the cellar and everything so still. Once he heard a door far up open and little shuffling noises, and by and by he could not stand it any longer. Getting down softly on all fours, he crept slowly, noiselessly over to the cellar stairs and began climbing, stopping at every step to listen. His efforts were much hampered by the milk bottle which kept dragging down to one side and threatening to hit against the steps, but he felt that milk was essential to his mission. He dared not go without it. The tools were in his other pocket— they too kept catching in his sleeve as he moved cautiously. At last he drew himself to the top step. There was a crack of light under the door. Suppose it should be locked. He could saw out a panel, but that would make a noise, and he still had the feeling that someone was in that house. A cellar was not a nice place in which to be trapped. One bottle of milk wouldn't keep him alive very long. The haunted house was a great way from anywhere. Even the bells couldn't call him from there once anybody chose to fasten him in the cellar and find the loose window and fasten it up. 
Such thoughts poured a torrent of hot fire through his brain while his cold fingers gripped the doorknob and slowly, fiercely, compellingly made it turn in its socket till its rusty old spring whined in complaint, and then he held his breath to listen again. It seemed an age before he dared put any weight upon that unlatched door to see if it would move, and then he did it so cautiously that he was not sure it was opening till a ray of light from a high little window shot into his eyes and blinded him. He held the knob like a vice, and it was another rage before he dared slowly release the spring and relax his hand. Then he looked around. He found himself in a kind of narrow butler's pantry with a swinging door opposite him into the room at the back and a narrow passage leading around the corner next the door. He peeked cautiously, blinkingly, round the door jamb and saw the lower step of what must be back stairs. There were no back stairs in Aunt Saxon's house, but before his mother died, Billy Gaston had lived in the city where they always had back stairs. That door before him likely led to the dining room. He took a careful step, pushed the swing door half an inch, and satisfied himself that was the kitchen at the back. No one there. Another step or two gave him the same assurance about the dining room and no one there. He surveyed the distance to the foot of the back stairs. It seemed long. What he was afraid of was that light space at the foot of those stairs. He was almost sure there was a hall straight through to the front door, and he had a hunch that that front door was open. If he passed the steps and anyone was there, they would see him, and yet he wanted to get up those stairs now, right away, before anything more happened. It was too still up there to suit him. With trembling fingers he untied his shoestrings and slipped off his shoes, knotting the strings together and slinging the shoes around his neck. He was taking no chances. He gripped the revolver with one hand and stole out cautiously. When he reached the end of the dining room wall, he applied an eye toward the opening of light, and behold, it was as he had suspected, a hall leading straight through to the front door, and Shorty, with his full-length profile cut clear against the morning, standing on the upper step, keeping lookout. He dodged back and caught his breath, then made a noiseless dart toward those stairs. If Shorty heard, or if he had turned and saw anything, he must have thought it was the reported ghost walking, so silently and like a breath passed Billy up the stair. But when he was come to the top, he held his breath again, for now he could distinctly hear steps walking about in the room close at hand, and peering up he saw the door was open part way. He paused again to reconnoiter, and his heart set up an intolerable pounding in his breast. He could dimly make out the back of a chair, and further against a patch of light where the back window must be, he could see the footboard of a bed, the head of which must be against the opposite wall. The door was open about a third of the way. There was a key in the lock. Did that mean that they locked the man in? It would be a great thing to get hold of that key. A moan in the direction of the bed startled him and prodded his weary mind. He gave a quick, silent spring across in front of the door and flattened himself against the wall. He knew he had made a slight noise in his going, and he felt the stillness in the room behind the half-open door. Link had heard him. It was a long time before he dared stir again. Link seemed to lay down something on the floor that sounded like a dish and start toward the door. Billy felt the blood fly to the top of his head. If Link came out, he was caught. Where could he fly? Not downstairs. Shorty was there, with a gun, of course. Would it do to snap that door shut and lock Link in with the prisoner? No telling what he might do, and Shorty would come if there was an outcry. 
He waited in an agony of suspense, but Link did not come out yet. Instead, he tiptoed back to the bed again and seemed to be arranging some things out of a basket on a little stand by the bed. Billy applied an eye to the crack of the door and got a brief glimpse. Then, cautiously, he put out his stubby fingers and grasped that key, firmly, gently, turning, slipping, little by little, till he had it safe in his possession. Several times he thought Link turned and looked toward the door. Once he almost dropped the key as he was about to set it free from the lock, but his anxious fingers were true to their trust and the key was at last drawn back and safely slid into Billy's pocket. Then he looked around for a place to hide. There were rooms on the front and a door was open. He could slide in there and hide. It was dark and there might be a closet. He cast one eye through the door crack and behind in the dim light, Link bending over the inert figure on the bed with a cup and a spoon in his hand. Perhaps they were giving him more dope. If only he could stop it somehow. The man was doped enough, sleeping all that time. But now was the time for him and the key to make an exit. Slowly, cautiously, he backed away from the door, down the hall, and into the next open door, groping his silent way toward a little half-moon in the shutter. He made a quick calculation, glanced about, did some sleight of hand with the door till it swung noiselessly shut, and then, slipping back to the window, he examined the catches. There was a pane of glass gone, but it was not in the right place. If he only could manage to slide the sash down. He turned the catch and applied a pressure to the upper sash, but like most upper sashes, it would not budge. If he strained harder, he might be able to move it, but that would make a noise and spoil his purpose. He looked wildly round the room, with the feeling that something must help him, and suddenly he discovered that the upper sash of the other window was pulled all the way down, and a sweet breath of wild grape blossoms was being wafted to his heated forehead. With a quick move he placed himself under this window, which he realized must be almost over Shorty's head. It was but the work of an instant to grasp Pat's gun and stick its nose well through the little half-moon of an opening in the shutter, point it straight over Shorty's head into the woods, and pull the trigger. The report went rolling, reverberating down the valley from hill to hill, like a whole barrage, it seemed to Billy, and perhaps to Shorty waiting for his pard below, but at any rate, before the echoes had ceased to roll, Shorty was no longer on the doorstep. He had vanished and was far away, breaking through the underbrush, stumbling and cutting himself. Getting up to stumble again, he hurled himself away from that haunted spot. Ghosts were nothing to Shorty. He could match himself against a spirit any day, but ghosts that could shoot were another matter, and he made good his going without hesitation or needless waiting for his partner in crime. He was never quite sure where that shot came from, whether from high heaven or down beneath the earth. As for Link, if he was giving more dope, he did not finish. He dropped a cup in his hurry and darted like a winged thing to the head of the stairs, where he took the flight at a slide and disappeared into the woods without waiting for locks or keys or any such things. He seems a little nervous, grinned Billy, who had climbed to the window seat with one eye applied to the half moon, watching his victims take their hurried leave. And lest they should dare to watch and return before he was ready for them, he sent another shot into the blue sky, ricocheting along the hills, and still another, grimly, after an interval. Then, swiftly turning, he stole down the front stairs and took the key from the lock, shut the door, pushing the big bolt on the inside. 
with a hasty examination of the lower floor that satisfied him that he was safely ensconced in his stronghold and would not be open to immediate interruption, he hurried upstairs again. His first act was to open a window and throw back the shutters. The morning sunlight leaped in like a friend and a bird in a tree caroled out gladly. Something in Billy's heart burst into a tear. A tear? Bah! He brushed it away with his grimy hand and went over to the bed, rolling the inert figure toward him till the face was in plain view. A sudden fit of trembling took possession of him as he dropped nervelessly beside the bed with his hands outstretched and uttered a sob ending in a single syllable. Cart! For there on the bed, still as the dead, lay Mark Carter, his beloved idol, and he had helped to put him there. Thirty pieces of silver! and his dearest friend dead, perhaps, a Judas. All his life he would be a Judas. He knew now why Judas hanged himself. If Cart was dead, he would have to hang himself. Here in this house of death he must hang himself, like Judas, poor fool. And he would fling that blood money back. Only Cart must not be dead. It would be hell forever for Billy if Cart was dead. He could not stand it. Billy sprang to his feet with tears straining down his cheeks, but his tired, dirty face looked beautiful in its anxiety. He tore open Mark Carter's coat and vest, wrenched away collar, necktie, and shirt, and laid his face against the breast. It was warm. He struggled closer and put his ear to the heart. It was beating. He shook him gently and called, Cart, Cart, oh boy, with sobs choking in his throat. And all the while the little bird was singing in a tree enough to split his feathered throat, and the sweet air full of wild grape was rushing into the long closed room and driving out the musty air. Billy laid Mark down gently on the dusty pillow and opened another window. He stumbled over the cup and spoon, and a bottle fell from the table and broke, sending out a pungent odor. But Billy crept close to his friend once more and began rubbing his hands and forehead and crooning to him as he had once done to his dog when he suffered from a broken leg. Nobody would have known Billy just then as he stood crooning over Mark. Water! He looked around. A broken pitcher stood on the table half-filled. He tasted it dubiously. It was water, lukewarm, but water. He soused a towel he found on the washstand into it and slopped it over Mark's face. He went through all the maneuvers they use on the football field when a man is knocked out, and then he bethought him of the milk. Milk was an antidote for poisons, if he could get some down him. Carefully he rinsed out a glass he found on the bureau and poured some milk in it, crept on the bed and lifted Mark's head in his arms, put the glass to his lips, and begged and pled, and finally succeeded in prying the lips and getting a few drops down. Such joy as thrilled him when Mark finally swallowed. But it was a long time, and Billy began to think he must go for the doctor, leave his friend here at the mercy of who would come and go after all. He had hoped he might keep his shame and Mark's capture from everybody, but what was that verse the teacher had taught them once a while ago? Be sure your sin will find you out. That was true. He couldn't let Mark die. He must go for the doctor. Doc would come, and he would keep his mouth shut, but Doc would know, and Billy liked Doc. Well, he would have to get him. Mark would hate it so, too, but Billy would have to. 
It was just then that Mark drew a long, deep breath of the sweet air, sighed, and drew another. Billy pressed the glass to his lips, and Mark opened his eyes, saw the boy, smiled, and said in a weak voice, "'Hello, Billy, old boy. Got knocked out, didn't I?' Then he closed his eyes and seemed to go away again, but Billy, with wildly beating heart, poured some more milk and came closer. "'Drink this, Cart. It's good. Drink it. We gotta get them dirty bums, Cart. Hurry up and drink it.' Billy understood his friend. Mark opened his eyes and roused a little. Presently he drank some more, nearly a whole glass full, and Billy took heart of hope. "'Do you think you could get up now, Cart, if I hept you?' he asked anxiously. "'We gotta get after those guys, or they'll make a getaway.' "'Sure,' said Mark, rousing again. "'Go to it, kid. I'm with you.' And he tried to sit up, but his head reeled and he fell back. Billy's heart sank. He must get him out of this house before the two keepers returned, perhaps with Pat or some other partner in their crime. Patiently he began again, and gradually, by degrees, he propped Mark up, fed him more milk, and urged him to rise, fairly lifted him with his loving strength across the room, and finally, inch by inch, down the stairs and out the back door. Billy felt a great thrill when he heard that door shut behind him and knew his friend was out in the open again under God's sky. Nothing ever quite discouraged Billy when he was out of doors, but it was a work of time to get Mark across the clearing and down in the undergrowth out of sight of the house where the old bicycle lay. Once there, Billy felt like holding a Thanksgiving service, but Mark was very white and lay back on the grass looking wholly unlike himself. "'Say, Cart,' said Billy after a brief silence of thought, "'I gotta get you on my machine. We gotta get down to Unity and phone.' "'All right, old man, just as you say,' murmured Mark, too dizzy to care. So Billy, with infinite tenderness and much straining of his young muscles, got Mark up and managed to put him astride the wheel. But it was tough going and slow, over rough places, among undergrowth, and sometimes Billy had to stop for breath as he walked and pushed and held his friend. But Mark was coming to his own again, and by the time they reached a road he was able to keep his balance and know what he was doing. It was high noon before they reached Unity and betook themselves to the drugstore. While Mark asked for medicine, Billy hied him to a telephone booth. His heart was beating wildly. He feared him much that Mark's car was gone. But the chief's voice answered him after a little waiting, and he explained, "'Say, I'm the kid that phoned you early this morning. Did you get that car right?' Billy held his breath. His jaded eyes dropped shut with anxiety and weariness." but the chief's voice answered promptly, "'Yes, we got your car all right, but didn't get the men. They beat it when they heard us coming. What sort of men were they, do you know?' "'Oh, that's all right, chief. I'll tell you when I get down there. Can't tell you over the phone. Say, I'm Billy, Billy Gaston. You know me. Over to Sab Valley. Yes, you seen me play on the team. Sure. Well, say, chief, I'm here in unity with the guy that owns the car, Mark Carter.' You know him. Sure. Mark. Well, he's all in, and he wants his car to get home. He's been up all night, and he ain't fit to walk. He wants me to come over and bring his car back to Unity for him. I got my bike here, see? Now, I ain't got a license, of course, but I could bring his along. That'd be all right, Chief? Just over to Unity? All right, Chief? Thank you, Chief. Yes, I'm coming right away. So long. Billy saw Mark comfortably resting on a couch in the back room of the drugstore, where an old pal of his was clerk, 
and then stopping only for an invigorating gulp or two of a chocolate ice cream soda, he climbed on his old wheel and pedaled on his happy way to economy. The winds touched him pleasantly as he passed. The sunshine had a queer reddish look to his feverish eyes, and the birds seemed to be singing in the top of his head, but he was happy. He might go to sleep on the way and roll off his wheel, but he should worry. Mark was safe. He had almost sold him for thirty pieces of silver, but God had somehow been good to him and Mark was alive. Now he would serve him all the rest of his life, Mark or God. It seemed all one to him now somehow, so long had he idealized his friend, so mixed were his ideas of theology. But Billy did not go to sleep nor fall off his wheel, and in due time he arrived in economy and satisfied the chief's curiosity with vague answers, a vivid description of Link and Shorty, and the suggestion that they might be found somewhere near the haunted house on Stark's Mountain. He had heard them talking about going there, he said. He got away without a mention of the real happening at Pleasant View, or a hint that he had had anything to do with the stealing of the car. Billy somehow was gifted that way. He could shut his mouth always just in time, and grin, and give a turn to the subject that entirely changed the current of thought, so he kept his own counsel. Not for his own protection would he have kept back any necessary information, but for Mark's sake. Yes, for Mark's sake. Mark would not want it to be known. It was in the early evening, and the sky was still touched by the afterglow of sunset beneath the evening star as Mark and Billy in the reclaimed car finally started from unity for home. In both their hearts was the thought of the bells that would be ringing now in Sabbath Valley for the evening service, and of the one who would be playing them, and each was trying to frame some excuse that would explain his absence to her without really explaining anything. And about this time the minister came forth from the parsonage, much vexed in spirit by the appearance of the outlandish lady in her outlandish car. She seemed to be insisting on remaining at the parsonage, as if it were a common hostelry, and he and his wife had much perplexity to know just what to do. And now, as he issued quietly forth from a side door, he could hear her lute-like voice laughing from his front porch, and looking back furtively, he saw to his horror that the lady, as well as the gentleman, was smoking a cigarette. He paused and tried to think just what would be the best way to meet the situation, and while he hesitated, his senior elder, a man of narrow vision, hard judgments, yet staunch sincerity, approached him. The minister had grown to expect something unpleasant whenever this man sought him out, and tonight he shrank from the ordeal. But anything was better than to have him see the visitor upon his front steps. So Severn turned and hurried toward him cordially. "'Good evening, Harricut. It's been a good day, hasn't it?' he said, grasping the wiry old hand. "'Not so pleasant as you'd think, Mr. Severn,' responded the hard old voice harshly. "'I've come on very unpleasant business. Very unpleasant indeed.' but the standard of the church must be kept up, and we must act at once in this matter. It is most serious, most serious. I've just called a meeting of the session to be held after church, and I've sent out for this Mark Carter to be present. He must answer for himself the things that are being said about him, or his name must be stricken from our church roll. Do you know what they are saying about him, Brother Severn? Do you know what he's done?' But the arrow had entered the soul of the minister, and his voice was too unsteady to respond, so the senior elder proceeded. He has been keeping company with a young woman of dissolute character, and he has been to a place of public amusement with her, and has been seen drinking with her. 
he affects dance halls, and is known to live a worldly life. It is time he was cast out from our midst and become anathema, and now it is quite possible he may be tried for murder. Have you heard what happened last night, Mr. Severn? Did you know that Mark Carter, a member of our church, tried to kill a man down at the Blue Duck Tavern and for jealousy about a girl of loose character? And now, Brother Severn, what are we going to do about it? Said the minister, answering quite calmly, Brother Harricot, we are not going to do anything about it just now. We are going into the church to worship God. We will wait at least until Mark Carter comes back and see what he has to say for himself. And about that minute, Mark, now thoroughly restored and driving steadily along the road, turned to Billy and said quietly with a twinkle in his eye, Kid, what made you put up that detour? End of chapter 9